So welcome everyone to day three of our intensive romp through folklore studies. Now today we're going to be talking about two important issues. One is the idea of genre in folklore, and two is why context and texture are just as important as a text of any item of folklore. The first segment, we're going to focus on the different genres of folklore. The second clip will turn to finding out what texture and context are all about. Now, before we get started, though, I thought we'd, I'd give you 30 seconds of Jeopardy host Alex Trebek saying the word genre. This genre of art, this genre of novel, this genre of game, this alliterative genre, this fantasy genre, this spooky genre, this popular genre, this six-letter genre, this genre, literary genre, leader in this colorful music genre, giant of this literary genre, 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 genre. So anyway, I just thought I'd give you something funny to watch. Now, what on earth is a genre of folklore? We know what genres are when it comes to movies or music or books. Uh, so that movie you're going to go watch could be a rom-com or a sci-fi or action or a thriller or a horror flick. For moviegoers, this kind of genre label helps you figure out which movie you should be checking out on Netflix, downloading or whatever. For folklorists, the same kind of labels help to find and compare similar kinds of items across different languages or regions or communities. Take a look, for example, at the Asian Folklore Archives. Search for folk recipes, for example. You're going to find that students like yourself have collected more than 400 different recipes, ranging from Punjabi Canadian dal to Korean drinks to Vietnamese soup, Chinese sticky rice balls, all kinds of other cool items. But without the genre label folk recipe, it would be nearly impossible to kind of find them all at once in the archives. Another important uh, thing we can do with genre or type is to use it to find patterns in how and why certain folk groups use certain types of folklore. So who knows, you might find out that Japanese Canadian students at UBC tell more jokes, I don't know, while Chinese international students tell more tongue twisters. Or maybe students from India have distinct folk beliefs. Who knows? But all in all, identifying and appreciating the various genres of folklore is one of the most fundamental skills that you need to pick up as a folklorist. On the other hand, there are a couple of reasons that you could kind of critique the idea of classifying folklore into genres or types. First, the labels that we put onto items are by default subjective meaning it's kind of up to us what to call these things. It, they don't come pre-stamped on the packaging, basically, right? Uh, one example, let's say you're at a Hindu temple. You saw a group of girls doing a dance and singing a song that was about an ancient sacred Hindu narrative. What the heck are you watching? <laughs> Is it a folk dance? Is it a folk song? Is it a myth? Is it a folk drama? Something else? It could be any of these actually based on what you think you're seeing. Basically, it's subjective. There's another problem with genre and type, and this is going to be something that you'll find out if you try to explain what folklore is to your family and friends. They're not exactly going to know those terms that you, as a folklorist, are using to denote the different kinds of folklore, proverb, tale, myth, folk metaphor, folk simile, etc., etc., they might say something like, oh, there's an old saying or a story or an idiom that I know. Their idea of proverb might be different than your idea of a proverb as a folklorist. 
or your consultants might only know the terms that are found in their own language, which may or may not correspond exactly to the English terms that we're using in the class. So there could also be a sense that the English genre names are biased or Eurocentric in, in their usage. Now, the reason why it's also confusing is that genres are not actually independent universal entities, right? They're socially determined categories. It's something that's different social groups decide on kind of unconsciously over time. So the exact same story might be called a folk tale by one group, but a myth in another culture. Or something that's a superstition for one culture might be a proverb for another culture. There's a clever distinction that scholars use here between emic versus etic category labels. When your grandmother or uncle calls a proverb a saying or an idiom, uh, <clears throat> they're using what are called emic genre labels. These are labels that are given within a particular society or language. The emic names can be different than the ones that folklorists use, which are called etic categories, and which are supposed to speak to a more general level outside of any specific cultural context. We'll get back to this business of emic and etic terms at the end of the again uh, this podcast, but one thing to keep in mind is that when you're out hunting for things like games or recipes or proverbs or whatever, it's good to have some examples of your own that you can give to your family and friends and ask them if they know something like that, right, and what they might call it. Let's now turn to the question of how we might start to imagine this wide world of folklore is divided into different genres. Lynn McNeil explains that we can think of folklore as coming out of four different, coming in four different uh, flavors or varieties. There's things you say, things you do, things you believe, and things you make. She, <clears throat> this is what she calls them. Sometimes I like to call them uh, different umbrella terms, like verbal genres, performance genres, belief-based genres, and material genres. Verbal genres include all kinds of folk narratives or stories, like tales, myths, legends, memorets, fables, and so on. Other verbal genres are things like slang or folk speech, proverbs, folk metaphors and similes, riddles, jokes, and there's a whole bunch more. Basically, anything that's just made up of words and you say it. On the other hand, if things are sung or danced or acted or performed, these are performance genres. These are things you do. Uh, things are, these are things like folk songs, folk music, folk dance, folk drama, gestures, games, customs, even entire festivals, which can be thought of as kind of like massive, public, large-scale performances. The third type of folklore involves belief of some kind. Uh, these are genres like superstitions, folk beliefs, blessings, curses, rituals, holidays. The final the kind of umbrella term for folklore are the material genres. These are all the different kinds of folk objects that are made and used traditionally, or substances. So things like folk art, architecture, furniture, maybe barns and fences out in the country, costume, clothing, foodways, folk recipes, medicines, and cures. There's, of course, overlaps between the different umbrellas. Folk medicine, for example, can be both material and require a belief that the traditional remedy for hiccups actually works, or the remedy for colds or fevers actually works. Same thing you can say about games. Right? They're performed or enacted as things you do, but they're also based on the common belief in the rules of the game that you have to follow. They could also involve verbal things like rhymes or songs as well. Now, when it comes to the genres of folklore, there's another 
uh, important distinction that's worth mentioning, which is between fixed phrase versus free phrase genres. Now, what's this difference? It's not too difficult, I'd say. Um, <clears throat> fixed phrase genres are those in which the text of an item is frozen. It means it has to be performed in exactly the same way every time you perform it. The easiest example is the proverb. Uh, how many different ways, for example, can you say the proverb, it takes one to no one? It's just one way, right? You can't really say, to no one it takes one, or it requires one in order to understand one. I mean, these would all make perfect sense as sentences. They mean the same thing, but it's not the same proverb. Now, how come that is? Well, it's because proverbs are a fixed phrase genre. For some strange reason, it really does matter how the words are put together in a proverb. Many other short verbal forms are fixed phrase, like slang or folk speech, folk songs, gestures, riddles. Larger genres sometimes tend to be free phrase because the text of the item was going to change each time it's performed, uh, even though there are larger patterns or like a plot that stays constant. Most stories are free phrase. For example, a, mother, a grandmother will tell you the same tale of Little Red Riding Hood over and over again, but each time she tells it, the basic plot line uh, will stay the same, but the words are not going to be the same. Uh, this is because no one actually memorizes Little Red Riding Hood word for word from beginning to end. They know how the story goes, but the wording is going to be different every time they tell it. Now, to close the segment, I wanted to return to the, to the question of etic versus emic genres. Remember, etic genres are the universal genre names that professional folklorists use across cultures. Emic labels are specific names that are given by folk groups themselves, often in their own non-English language, like in Hindi or Cantonese, Japanese, Mandarin, or whatever. It's really important to be aware of the subtleties of what uh, people call their own folklore because there are often actually meaningful shades of uh, difference that you can learn about if you learn the, the names in the original language. Uh, proverbs in Chinese, for example, have a lot of subcategories, yanyu or chengyu or xiehouyu. Uh, when you're hunting for folklore from your family or friends or neighbors or whoever, this distinction between etic and emic labels could in fact become a, like a central focus of your media project, uh, leading as you lead your viewers through, let's say, the different kinds of proverbs in Mandarin that are in your house, I don't know, or the different names that people use to describe different uh, types of music genres, I don't know, or the different ways to wear a, a sari or other uh, traditional clothing in India. Variation, like I said, is the most interesting thing about folk cultures. Now, basically, being sensitive to emic labels is super important for understanding context. And that's what we're going to turn to in our next clip after we take a little bit of a break and see you next time.